I don't know for you, but man, I love our worship team. Oh man, that was awesome. (laughs) I have have really missed that this summer. And uh, for me, worshiping in here is just kind of like hitting the reset button. I walked in when they were rehearsing this morning and I told Tim, I just kind of went, ah, that was great. Um, So where are we starting? Uh, Acts chapter six. I need you to turn to Acts chapter six this morning. That's where we're going to begin. I have a tool to show you this morning, and uh, I know it's going to be difficult for some of you to see in the back, so I took a few pictures of this. Uh, This belongs to my dad. Uh, My dad found this about a year ago. I walked into his house, and he dropped it in my hand, and he said, what do you think this is for? And if you've ever met my dad, you know that if there's a really obvious answer, (laughs) there's a lot more to the story, right? I mean, yeah, okay, I got it. It's it's a ruler, right? Or a, a tape measure, rather. It's tape measure. It measures things. But there's a lot more to it. Uh, It's not just a tape measure. Uh, If you have to make an inside measurement, you can actually read the distance here through the top of the tape measure. Modern tape measures, you you go to the inside measure, and and then in your mind you have to add two and a half inches. Well, this one you can just look down through the top, and there's the correct measurement. But wait, there's more. As you're measuring, you can tell if the thing that you're measuring is actually level. There's a level on the top of it. Okay, And then the most interesting feature, if you flip this over, there's a tab that comes out, and in the bottom of the tab, there's a little spike. And what you do is you, you put the tape measure down, and you tap that spike into a piece of wood, and then you put a pencil through that little hole there, and it gives you a, an arc or a circle that is exactly how you've measured it. Right? And I know I'm going to have some engineers and building construction people come up and they want to lay their hands on this thing. Um, but it's not mine. This is my dad's. It was built in the construction or made in design and made in the 1930s. They don't make them like this any longer. Right? And the thing is still in perfect condition. A lot of thought went into the design of this little tool. This little tool uh, is a metaphor this morning for your life. It's a metaphor for your life. You are not accidental. There's nothing accidental about you. A lot of thought, a lot of care, a lot of love went into your design by God. You were made for something. And and all of your various features are all focused on a purpose. And that purpose is that your life would influence the lives of others. That is God's calling and God's purpose for your life. Now this semester we're going to study the book of Acts. Um, We're actually going to officially start our study of the book of Acts in a couple weeks. But as I was uh, kind of thinking through this summer, our entire study of the book of Acts, I realized 28 chapters, 13 weeks, we're not going to be able to cover the entire book. And so there were certain chapters that began to be discarded. And one of those was Acts chapter 6. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I just can't really discard Acts chapter 6 because it's such an important chapter. So we'll actually go to Acts chapter 1 in a couple weeks. But right now we're going to talk about Acts chapter 6. And the reason for that is that Acts chapter 6 has some beautiful insights into how we are to exercise our spiritual influence in the world. Okay, so I want you to turn with me, if you're not there yet, to Acts chapter 6, and we're just going to cover the first seven verses. Acts chapter 6, read with me in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, 
A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. First observation, we are to exercise our influence on others in God's direction. Now, that may seem obvious, right? Um, Brian, you've been away most of the summer, and that's the best that you can do as you come back. (laughs) I always feel like I have an eye for the obvious. Here's my point. Um, If you do a little search on the most influential lives on human history, what's remarkable is very few Christians show up. Most influential lives, you'll see a lot of celebrities now, modern days, and athletes, politicians. You'll see people even like Hitler and Stalin, who had incredible influence on human history, not necessarily in a great direction, right? But their lives were influential. In other words, as I read through a variety of lists that I pulled up, very few people on those lists were intentionally influencing others for the glory of God. They were influencing others in in a wide variety of directions, but not for God. So uh, yesterday, no, it was Friday, I was driving through town, and I got stuck in the line of traffic, and my first thought was, oh, it's going to get a lot worse in a couple days. But as I sat there and I watched these cars going in and out, some are stalled and not moving at all, and then there's this, you know, just busyness at this intersection, I just thought, I, I wonder what God thinks as he looks down upon humanity. And here we are, we're moving around. There's this maze of movement, but to what end? Does he look down and we just look like ants kind of scurrying around, somewhat pointless, somewhat directionless? How does God feel about that? When I, when I stopped and I thought about the, the people who were just at my intersection, I thought, how many of them really understand what life is for? How many of them really get it? From time to time, I will just stop and say, God, thank you that I get it. I I understand the gospel. Yes, I understand that Jesus came to the earth and took on human flesh to die for my sins, was raised from the dead so that I can have eternal life. I believe in that. I get it. I get the gospel. But beyond that, Father, I thank you that I get why my life is here. As a believer, I understand what I am called to do, to invest in the lives of others, to influence others spiritually. I get it. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Because how many people in our community just don't get it? How many believers who are sitting in churches on a Sunday morning just don't get it, that they are called for a very specific purpose to influence the lives of others, and they just don't get it, that they are called to influence not just their friends and their family and their neighbors, but to be thinking about the nations because God loves all people. How many get it? Men and women, if you get it this morning, what a privilege. What an honor. This is why you were made. 
in all of the features of your life, all of the gifts and the talents and the history and the relationships are all pointing to one particular design, that your life would influence the lives of others. See, the disciples were given a mission, right? They were given a a vision for their lives. And in fact, Jesus kind of uh, kept repeating it over and over and over again (laughs) for them. Uh, Go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. I will make you fishers of men. Make disciples of all nations. Here's my vision for your life. You you, you had a a small life, and it was a very narrow life. It was pretty myopic, and it was really focused mostly upon yourself. But I want you to think beyond that. Disciples, I want you to make disciples of all nations. And we're going to talk a lot in the next few weeks about discipleship. In brief, a disciple is simply a learner or a student. There's a master teacher. The disciple is one who learns, who studies, and who eventually follows and learns to imitate the master, not just in the knowledge that the master has, but also in the character of the master. And then he goes out and he influences others in the same way that the master has influenced him. And Jesus told his disciples, that's the point. That's not just the point for you 12. That's the point of life. That's, that's what we do. That's why we're here. Make disciples of all nations. Now, you know, our, our church vision statement, our slogan is this. Raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. It's essentially a restatement of the Great Commission. Hey, our mission as a church is the Great Commission. We've just stated it this way. Why? Well, because in this community, we, we naturally want to be thinking about the next generation, another generation. When we move from this place or when we leave this earth, we want to leave behind another generation of worshipers. It might be that you pour your life into those who are younger, into students. It might be that you pour your life into someone who's older, who lives next door to you. It could be the 75-year-old neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and has lived his entire life not knowing what life is for, and you get to share Christ with him. Teach him how to worship and love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and pour his life into those around him. That's another generation of spiritual influencers because that's really what leadership is. You may say to yourself, well, I'm not a leader. Oh, yes, you are. Sorry, you're wrong and I'm right. You are a leader because a leader is simply an influencer and God has called you to have Influence, And if you say, no, 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 I, I don't have influence or I don't want influence, you know what that is influence. If you look at the mass of humanity around you who are chasing hard at something that is not God and you say, I choose not to exercise the influence God has given me over them, that is influence. You're letting them run. And God says, no, you need to intervene. Because that's what the grace of God is. The grace of God is God takes initiative with us. He comes after us. When we were enemies, when we were fleeing from God, he chases us down and he draws us to himself. And he has called us to enter into that process with him of spiritual influence. That's why God has made us in this world. Now, I want you to turn back with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. What happens in the early church is that the disciples begin to get it. And I'm going to argue once we get into Acts chapter 2 and 3 that they really didn't get all of it. They just kind of slowly begin to understand the point. But they do begin the process of sharing the gospel, particularly focused on the resurrection, and making disciples. And church, when you as an individual, or we as a community of believers, do what God tells us to do, lives are changed. When we go God's direction, lives are changed. Chapter 2, 
Read with me in verse 41. It says, so, those, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls or lives. Okay. Day one of the church, 3,000. <laughs> verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Okay, and the word is specifically there for males. So the males now numbered 5,000, which means if you add in the women and the children, we're probably up over 10,000 people. Within a matter of weeks, the church went from zero to 10,000. And from time to time, I'll have people say to me, man, I just don't like that whole megachurch movement. And I say, well, you would not have liked the church in Jerusalem in the first 30 days. Can you imagine, just like that, 10,000 plus, and every day, they're adding more. Why? Because they were doing what God had called them to do. Now, not surprisingly, as they uh, pursued success, there was also uh, resistance, right? There's also resistance. Now, if you're uh, visiting maybe for the first time, there's a uh, new semester and about to start and you're checking out churches, you may not know we're, we're in the process of, of planting a third location. We have a second location over by the high school. It's called Southwood Campus. And we're in the process of starting a third location. It's called the Creekside Campus. In fact, they are doing their, their second morning. of a, We call it a soft launch, which means we didn't advertise, didn't open it up. It's just practice because they've got to unload everything out of trailers, move it into Pebble Creek Elementary School, worship, pack it up, and leave. Right, and they have to do all that in uh, unload about an hour and then load back up about an hour. And so uh, it's, it's, it needs a few practice sessions to work out the bugs. I actually texted Matt early this morning and said, how's it going? Because you know, I'd love to be watching that and seeing that. It's exciting. It's new. And he said, you know, better than last week. <laughs> better than last week we're learning. But, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's kind of hot this summer. And... You know, even by 8 a.m., it's 85 degrees, and they have to unload all that. It's a lot of work. And when they finish worshiping, it'll probably be about 95, 96 degrees. It'll be a lot of work. It's, it's hard work. And you know what? It's also expensive. We didn't, and we didn't have to start a third site. We didn't have to, we didn't have to pursue this. So why are, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Because it's crowded? No, it's not. But you know, it, it, again, if you're visiting... Next week, come earlier, and the week after that, come earlier, because when the students all arrive back, it's just, it's going to be really crowded here, and it's going to be really crowded over at Southwood, and I pray that we're always really crowded, and we're not planning a third site to alleviate crowding because we're a little bit uncomfortable. I hope we're always uncomfortable. I hope we're always at that level of discomfort where God is pushing us and saying, you know, the, the community you live in is growing. More and more people are moving in. And those people need to know Jesus Christ. And they need to worship him. And they need to give their lives in his service. And so the church needs to plant churches. You and your life. You need to be pouring your life into others. Because that's God's design. That's his plan. We'll talk about the specifics of that last week. What could it look like in your life? 
But it's also God's design for the church. That as individuals, we multiply and that the church multiplies. And you know, on the south end of town, that's where all kinds of housing developments are going to be going in in the next 10 years. And, and no one is planting new churches out there. You know why? Because it's expensive and it's hard. <laughs> and that's where the church needs to go. Church also needs to go into other areas, into other constituencies in this community. And we need to plant churches that have a vision for planting churches and for reaching the nations because that's what the church is called to do, men and women. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And you know what? In the first century, the church experienced resistance because Satan hated it when the church did what the church should do. And we are going to experience resistance as well and we should expect it and anticipate it. One of the themes we're going to trace through the book of Acts is persecution. Because everywhere that the church went, it suffered and experienced resistance because Satan hates the church, the bride of Christ. There was persecution from the outside. There were conflicts and problems inside. Acts chapter 5, there was hypocrisy and lying inside the church and that had to be dealt with. And then in chapter 6, another problem comes up. There is a grumbling that's beginning to stir inside of the church and threatening to derail the church from its purpose. I want you to read with me chapter 6 again in verse 1. Luke writes, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, doing what they should be doing, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The problem is this, some of the widows are being neglected. And the result is there is grumbling. Now let me define a couple of terms for you first. Uh, the first term is widow. Again, you say, I, you don't need to define that term for me. Well, it's kind of like my dad's tool. The easy answer is what you think, there's, there's more to the story, right? In, in the first century, actually in all of the biblical context, uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about those who are widows indeed. In other words, ladies who have not just lost their husband, but also have no family and no financial support. Right? So widows who had family, their family was to take care of them. Widows who did not have family or any other means of financial support, the church put them on the roll and the church wrapped their arms around them and took care of them financially and supported them. And there were a group of widows that were not being supported. In particular, notice he says the complaint arises from the Hellenistic widows against the native Hebrew widows. Okay. Both are groups of widows who have no finances and they have no family, have no one to take care of them. Both groups are Jewish, but culturally they're very different. The Hellenistic widows were raised outside of Palestine. Their first language is probably Greek. Culturally, they think Greek. They worship the one true God. They are Jewish and they have believed in Jesus as their Messiah. But culturally, they're very much separated from the native Hebrews who were raised in Palestine. Aramaic or Hebrew is their native language. This is the only place they've lived to. Probably haven't, haven't traveled outside of Israel. They're, they've worshipped at the temple their entire lives. Culturally, they are very different and they are missing one another. The Hellenistic widows probably were 20% by some estimates. And in the process of them receiving what they needed daily to eat and to survive... The Hellenistic widows were forgotten. They were forgotten. And so there's a cultural, social disconnect. Now, I will tell you, I, I felt that when I first moved from New York to Texas. There was a 
Was that a hiss? It's still there. Ah. I kind of missed it. I disconnect. It was a disconnect. And, and you know, every time I would, I would say a phrase, my New Texas friends, they would say, say that again. And then they would imitate what I had just said. And they would, every phrase, every statement, they would just kind of mock the way that I spoke. And I guess I had a, a thick New York accent at the time that is some, somewhere disappeared. But, you know, I remember uh, thinking to myself, hey, you know, we're all Americans. I'm an American. Right? They said, yeah, well, you're an American, but you're not a Texan. <laughs> I actually have had my, my son has told me that before. He said, Dad, you know, you're not a Texan. I'm a Texan. My son was born here, raised here. He said, I'm a Texan, Dad. You're not a Texan. Lived here for 30-something years. I'm still not a Texan. <laughs> According to my son, it feels like home to me, but there's still a social disconnect, I guess, even within my own family. All right, well, that's what's happening here. And it hasn't really risen to the level of animosity, but there is grumbling. It's the same word that was used of the Israelites grumbling against Moses back in the book of Exodus. Things are beginning to stir. Conflict is arising. Things aren't working quite right. There's a problem, and that problem has to be addressed. So the first part of the problem is this. Some of the widows are being neglected, but the second part of the problem is this. It can lead to the distraction of some of the leaders can lead to the distraction of some of the leaders. Again, verse one, a conflict is arising. Complaint comes up on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. And they bring the problem to the apostles and they say, solve it. Solve the problem. And, you know, the apostles could have solved the problem directly. They could have said, no problem, we've got it. We'll serve the tables. But if they had done so, then they would have been distracted from their primary responsibility, which was to teach and preach and equip the people and to pray. They could have done it, but they probably wouldn't have done it as well as others could do it. I want you to mark your place here in Acts chapter 6 and turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18, a wonderful passage on spiritual leadership and spiritual influence. Begin reading with me in verse 13. So Exodus 18 and verse 13. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and you will wear out these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me and I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, 
of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people also will go to their place in peace. Moses, you need help. Moses, you need advice. Moses, what you're doing is not best for you and it is not best for the people. This isn't the way that you should handle things. Because you need, Moses, to work together. Turn back to chapter 6 and verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, the solution was administrative. The solution was pragmatic. Apostle said, you do that and we'll do this. Or if I can put it another way, they didn't have this major strategic planning session where they decided this is the best organizational structure for the church to fulfill its mission. No, a problem came to them and they just reacted and they said, we need to divide the labor, here's the solution. Now, why was this such an important moment in the life of the church? I mean, after all, this is not really a spiritual issue, is it? It's just food. It's a, it's a practical issue. It's a pragmatic issue. Well, it's so important in the life of the church because the church is actually about to be called to launch its mission to the Gentiles, to, to go to the nations, to move outside of simply focusing on the Jews and focusing on Jerusalem. But first they have to get their own house in order. If there is grumbling and disputes, then the church will be disrailed derailed from its mission. It won't accomplish what God has called it to do, right? Men and women, churches that are are really healthy internally are like a well-oiled machine. Every part is in its place and there is not friction between. Really healthy churches make disciples because that's what the church is called to do. Unhealthy churches don't make disciples. Unhealthy churches get distracted and so what's happening here is, sure, it's, it's practical, it's food, it seems very earthy, but it is very spiritual for the church to remain healthy. And so first, we influence others in God's direction, but second, we influence alongside of one another. You know, when we moved from uh, 701 Anderson to 700 Anderson, We moved across the street. The church was that small uh, building right over there where all we had initially was just uh, where the college ministry is, and then we added the gym. We got this property, and eventually we built. And when we built this property, we opened the doors and immediately filled two services. (laughs) We had about, uh, I think there were four pastors on staff. Debbie Howard was our business Administrator, we had another administrative assistant, Karen Davison, helping us. We had about six people on staff, and all of a sudden, we had about between uh, two and three thousand people worshiping on a Sunday. <laughs> it was overwhelming. It was absolutely overwhelming. You know what we needed? We needed wise administrative decisions. That was wisdom. Is what we needed, and we needed to learn to work alongside of one another. And we needed members of the congregation to learn to work alongside of one another. 
I want you to read with me again verse 3. The apostles tell them this. Brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, I said each of those seven names not because uh, I wanted to prove to you I could say them. Okay? Yeah, they're, they're hard to say, but I, I, I pronounced each name because I wanted you to hear the point that each of these names is actually a Greek name. So what's happening here is the Hellenistic Jews come on behalf of the Hellenistic widows and they say, apostles, you've got a problem. And the apostles say, no, we don't. You do. (laughs) Solve it. And so what do they do? They get together and they pick out seven from among themselves to solve the problem. Now, a couple of observations. First, they choose seven. They don't choose one. And there is a plurality. Because in the church, we always lead from, from a plurality. We lead as a team. There were 12 disciples. One fell away, one was added. Those 12 became the apostles. In the early church, first century, before the church expanded, early on, there was one local church. It was in Jerusalem. Those apostles were the leaders of the church. But they realized as the church grew, no, others need to step in and lead alongside. And so they picked men to serve. They used the word diakonos, It's not officially the role of deacon yet, but it will become such. As the church goes out and plants more churches, Paul will tell Timothy, appoint elders. They will take on this role of apostleship, in a sense, in the local church. But I want you to plant churches with more than one elder. There's not a single elder. There's not one person who rules in a local church. So plant a team. And alongside them, another team. Because the church always leads together. I will confess to you, that I uh, have always hated group projects. That I hated group projects when I was a student at A&M. Fortunately, in my major in economics, I didn't have to do a lot of them. Whenever I did, it was terrible because, you know, you always get some slackers in your group and you have to carry the load of all the slackers. And I hated that. I was able to avoid it largely, but when I went to seminary, seminary profs love group projects. So I'm like, oh, this is terrible. At least maybe, you know, these people are Christians. They'll do something. No. No, you know, they didn't. But then I, I was in a, a particular class, and there were a couple of my friends from A&M who were in that class. And I'm like, awesome, okay, let's sit together, let's work together, let's do these group projects together, right? So we can get something good done on this thing. Well, final project, final grade seminary uh, of this particular class was a group project. And man, I'm working my tail off. And, you know, they were not... Right? We all got together at the end after we'd mapped out the project and they brought their portion and I brought my portion. I, I looked at it and I go, this is terrible. Did you guys do anything on this? And they go, not really. Not really. So this is what we have to turn in. You know, three parts, but it's one project. We turn it in. Sure enough, we got a C. Which I don't groove on C's, man. That was not cool. We got a C. Great. And my friends, good friends, they felt really guilty. I didn't try to alleviate that at all, right? (laughs) So they actually went to the prof and they said, 
look, we need to tell you, you know, the, the section that you had really good marks in the margins, and that was Brian's. He did that part. And, you know, these sections where you, there are a lot of negatives, you know, that was mine, that was mine. Okay, we didn't really pull our weight on this project. Could you, would you be willing to give Brian a bit higher grade because he really actually put in the work? I mean, literally, those are good friends, right? They came alongside after they screwed up and they tried to pull that C up for me. And, you know, his response, sorry, it's a group project. Ugh. C, there we go. Now, my attitude has changed. I, I have realized now that all of life is actually a group project. My family, family's group project. There's husband, wife, and children. There we go. That's the team. It's a group project. Everything we do, it's a group project. My job at work here now, it's a group project. But I've actually come, I will tell you, honestly, I love it. I absolutely love it because I've learned that there are incredible benefits to working together in a healthy team and in a healthy family. I want to tell you just three that I have discovered. The first is synergy, and I love this word. It's a Greek word. Uh, It means literally to work with or to work together, but the implication is that the power and the wisdom and the strength that comes from working together. When, When I go into a staff meeting, I have good ideas. And I like my ideas. Um, you know, I had uh, one of our staff members say to me a few years ago, he said, you always think you have good ideas, don't you? I said, well, of course. If I didn't, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't, tell, I wouldn't say, Here, here's a bad idea, right? I always think my ideas are good. Right? But this is what I've learned. Because we have built this incredible staff team with really spiritually mature and smart, creative people, I now assume when I walk into those meetings, somebody is probably going to have a better idea than mine. And what I really want is I want the best idea. And if they don't have a better idea than mine, they're going to have an idea that makes my idea a lot better than I could conceive of. And the product that comes out of that conversation is always better. I love that. You know, when we, when we uh, actually started Southwood Campus, Blake had never preached week in and week out. It's hard to tell now, right? When you hear Blake, you're like, oh my gosh, he was born preaching. You're like John the Baptist. It's amazing, right? But when he started Southwood, he hadn't done that week in and week out. I said, all right, well then let's just teach the same thing and we can talk during the week and we can share ideas and that kind of thing. And I think it really benefited Blake initially, but I will tell you now I'm the beneficiary. I get so much out of interacting with Blake. And now Matt is going to be teaching same topic, same passages over at Creekside. And you can expect that my sermons are going to get even better because of Matt's input. Because Matt is a really, really good Teacher, there is, there's synergy. There's, there's a greater outcome through working together. And I love that now, and I embrace it. Second is accountability. When you work with a group of people, even if there's no hierarchy within the group, there is accountability to one another. And men and women, we need accountability. We were created to have accountability in our lives, to not live isolated. Accountability is like this umbrella over us that guards us and protects us under the authority of God, under the authority of our elders, under the authority of one another. It's a protection. Third, sanctification. Another friend say a few years ago, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. (laughs) But ministry is people, isn't it? Right? And that's what we do. We, We rub on one another. And even in those conflicts, God uses all of those things to make us more like Jesus Christ. 
That's the value. Second observation, there are qualifications, but the qualifications are, are, are pretty simple. Okay, pretty simple. Apostles say, I want you to find seven men of good reputation. They're known in the community, but they're devoted to Jesus. They're full of the spirit. That is, the spirit is in control of their lives, and they are full of wisdom. And I think in this particular case, he's talking about men who are qualified because their wisdom pertains to administrative things. They can figure out the problem and solve it. They're not perfect, but they're in the game and they're willing. And so they serve. Now, one more observation about elder governance uh, in particular. Though there were not elders in the first church until later. Right now there are apostles. But eventually there would be elders as the highest authority in each local church. And they would be a plurality. Not one single person ruling over the church. And the reason I bring that up is because Uh, When people come to our church sometimes from uh, other denominations or backgrounds, one of the main questions they have is, how how does this church work? And they don't understand it because they haven't been in an elder-governed church. And it's different. This is not a pastor-rule church. It is an elder-governed church. The elders in this church are not the only leaders. There are hundreds of leaders in this church. Ideally, every single one of us influencing the lives of of others leading not just the elders the elders rule alongside one another and the authority that they have comes to them because they serve together not a single individual elder and certainly not a single pastor i'm not an elder i am under the authority of the elders and when i was young having authority over me is not what i always wanted as i've grown older i love it i love the fact that i have godly men that i serve under that hold me accountable that guard and protect me, which they do, that pray for me and love me. That's the elder's responsibility. And I serve under them. I also serve alongside of them because they're friends and they're peers. I also have to help them because they work full-time jobs and they come here after having worked 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week and we have an elders meeting and they, they can't do all the work that I do. I need to come and deliver ideas for them to sit in judgment over, to govern over. And the fact of the matter is we have a a wonderful elder board of godly men who serve together. And there's a great relationship between them as they lead our church. Now, interestingly, just this last year, as we began to contemplate starting a third site, they stepped back and realized, you know, we can't govern three sites with seven men We need to bring others in. And so we reconstituted our elder board into four different teams. There are now four teams of elders. Why? Because that spreads out the work that God has given to the church. We share responsibility, and there's a greater level level of accountability for the local church. To stay focused on what the local church should do, which is what? Make disciples of all nations. So we serve alongside of one another. Third observation, we should each influence as we were made. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And what Paul means by measure of faith is not that it's going to be easy for some to believe and hard for others to believe. The measure of faith he's talking about is the design that God has put into your life that is unique to you and only to you. 
and the relationships and the history, that's all you. That's what he's talking about by that phrase, the measure of faith. You were made with, with great care and great love and great thought into who you are and how you can influence others. So, a couple thoughts for you. First, some tasks were made for us. And some tasks just, man, they just absolutely fit. When the church started in Antioch, they needed a little bit of encouragement, and so the apostle sent Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement. They needed encouragement. They sent Barnabas. Barnabas steps in, and man, he encourages them. And Barnabas realizes, you know, they also need some, some teaching. And there's somebody better than me at that. And he went and found Paul and brought Paul back. And then they worked alongside of one another. Not in competition, but in harmony. Some tasks were just made for us. Second, some tasks we all do. Stephen and Philip were chosen to administrate the serving of food and tables. But in the very next chapter, what do we see Stephen doing? He's preaching. And he's preaching such a great and convicting sermon that he gets killed. And then a chapter after that, what's Philip doing? Well, Philip is down sharing the gospel cross-culturally with an Ethiopian. He's, he's, he's unfolding Isaiah chapter 53. What profound insight did this man have into the word of God that he can make that connection, Isaiah 53? And the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. So these two men who were administrating servants, serving of table are actually also sharing the gospel because that's what we're all called to do. That's what we're all called to do, men and women. That's what we're designed for. Some tasks don't suit us at all. Uh, I have a friend who has got like zero mercy, you know, thimble full of mercy. He's terrible as a marriage counselor. Terrible, man. Stay out of the room. You're, you're going to make it worse. Just uh, don't do it. Now, does he need to grow in mercy? <laughs> it's a fruit of the Spirit. But let's, let's be honest. In terms of your, your task for the kingdom of God, you should be doing something else. Some tasks just don't suit us well. And we need to not be insecure about that, but embrace it. God made us uniquely. All tasks are valuable. Read with me again chapter 6, verse 1. There's, three wor- there's one word that's used three times here. End of chapter, s- chapter 6, verse 1. It says the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. That's, again, the word diakonos, the serving of food. End of chapter 2. It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And then verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. In other words, there was ministry to the table, there was ministry of the word. And both were ministries. Both were ministries. Different callings, different design. But both were ministry so that the body of Christ would love Jesus so much that they had to tell their friends and their family about him. And they began to influence the culture around them. Because that's what the church is called to do. Now, a couple application points for you. First, how has God designed you to influence others? Do you know? Uh, We run a course periodically. It's called Discover Your Ministry. It it talks about your history and your personality and your background, your spiritual giftings. How has God put you together to do evangelism and discipleship? Okay, To spiritually influence others, to make disciples of all nations. Talk some more about that next week. If you don't know, let me encourage you, get into that class or call one of our staff members. If you're home church, in a home church group, talk to your home group leader. Maybe that would be a, a curriculum you could study in your home group this semester. How, are, how am I designed? How are we designed? How is my family designed? And what are the relationships God has given us that we can influence others? Second question, who are you called to influence this semester? Who has God already 
placed in your sphere of influence. Maybe it's a, it's a neighbor who's there and you don't even know that neighbor's name yet, but man, it is time. It is time to walk out the door, go to that family, get to know them, invite them to dinner, begin to pray for them and to see if God might move and stir in them. Or maybe there's a coworker. The Lord's just, Spirit's just been needling you to share Jesus with that person. Hey, to build a bridge into the gospel and the truth with that person. I promise you, those relationships are already there. They're just waiting for you to take them. So my final question for you is, this week, where will you begin? Uh, it is my conviction that we should not come on a Sunday morning and just add more biblical data into our minds about what the text says rather than walk away and say, what is the Spirit telling me to do and to respond? So what will you do with that this morning? I want you to take a few just moments quietly as I close in prayer and just ask God's Spirit to speak to you directly as we close. Father, I pray that we would not merely be hearers of the word, but, but doers, because all that you've called us to do is what most satisfies and fulfills us and brings us joy when we enter into the work that you are doing in the way that you've called us to do it. And I pray, Father, that we would, that we would embrace that and would courageously step out in faith this day. I pray, Father, that you would add to our number those who are being saved day by day, I pray, Father, for Southwood as, as they begin to prepare for a new semester and the Creekside launch next week. Lord, I ask you uh, to never let us get ahead of you, but always be following behind you, hearing your voice as you lead us. Lord, give us a, a, a greater vision for our community, for this campus, and for the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me encourage you, if uh, you'd like to know how you can maybe apply this sermon a little more deeply, specifically, we're going to have some men and women up front after the service, or maybe God's just put something on your heart right now and you'd like somebody to pray for you. Again, there'll be some couples up front. They would love to uh, pray with you at the end of this, uh, end of this time. So God bless you. We will see you next week.